Hi, and welcome to the Hip Health is Pow Her podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Anna Esperham. I'm an MD, nationally recognized physician with triple board certifications in integrative functional medicine, pediatrics, and medical acupuncture with special pain training and clinical hypnosis and aromatherapy certifications, and we have a team of healthcare professionals that provide real and evidence-based information to support women on their health and wellness path, and our goal is to empower you to awaken your best self, connect with the true you, heal and recover from health issues, symptoms, chronic pain, illness, life stressors, all while feeling your healthiest, full of vitality and stamina to do what you love. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health is Power podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anna. And today we have a little bit of a different podcast episode as we have a special guest here today. Her name is Danielle Dukes. Uh, She's a fourth year medical student at Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine um, at Ohio University. And she I, one of her, uh, her deans actually at the medical school reached out to me and said she really had this um, incredible story of adversity, tragedy and resilience. And I needed to talk to her and she needed to go on the show for you guys as the listeners to hear about her story and how she's kind of gotten through this last year of incredible hardship. I don't know how anyone has gone through what she has gone through and it just makes me totally in awe of her and her power and her strength. Um, because I think hearing her story before this podcast episode, um, it just makes me like uh, things that I've been through is, you know, nothing comparable. And I am just incredibly grateful for the blessings in my life. And I am just in awe of how incredibly strong she is. And so let's welcome Danielle Dukes. And um, Danielle, do you just want to say hi and kind of maybe even give a little background um, about yourself? Sure. Hello, everyone. Um, I am honored to come and talk to you guys today, and thank you for the opportunity to share my story with everyone. I am originally from Dayton, Ohio. My dad was in the military, so he was stationed at Wright Pat Air Force Base here. So um, I grew up in Dayton, and I come from a pretty large family <laughs> with a great support system. I um, I'm the youngest child, so there's that. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> so I had originally started off wanting to go into medicine and, and everything growing up. It was actually a dream of my dad's, um, and which due to the times and, you know, financial restraints, he was unable to pursue. So he went into the military instead. But, you know, I think that's a shared dream that, you know, I have with my father. I'm actually the first person in my family to attend college and go to, you know, let alone go to medical school. And I'm the first health professional <laughs> in my family. So, I just remember getting into medical school and being thrilled and, you know, coming home to talk to my family about it and they have no clue of anything or my mom, you know, she had a, a doctorate in Grey's Anatomy. So like I would come <laughs> and share 
you know, what happened on my first patient exam. And she's like, well, I could have told you that because on Gray's, you know, this happened, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, definitely blessed just to be, you know, surrounded by family and the foundation of family. Um, So I was able to go to college uh, on an athletic scholarship. So I played basketball and after that, I got my MBA in healthcare management and my MS in biology, and those were off of a scholarship, um, graduate assistantship. So I kind of took more of a scenic route to get to where I am today, but ultimately I wanted to work with patients. And um, growing up, my mom was always sick. Um, she had lupus. So uh, I just remember taking her to doctor's appointments all the time. It was pretty aggressive. She ended up, you know, going into um, end-stage renal disease um, and starting dialysis during my first years of medical school. And my husband, his mom was actually diagnosed with end-stage, well, stage four esophageal cancer in my first year of medical school. So like both of our parents were pretty, both of our mothers were pretty ill, you know, from the beginning. And with your mother being sick, uh, was that sort of what spurred you on to want to go into the medical field? Definitely. So I originally thought that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I tore my ACL in high school. Um, So, you know, I had to have ACL reconstructive surgery, was able to go in and, you know, still get a scholarship to play basketball in college and, Um, I shadowed my ortho doc afterwards, and I even did like ACL research in Pittsburgh um, during undergrad. And so I kind of went into medicine thinking, you know, and applying to medical schools thinking that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then my mom got sick. And at first they didn't know what was wrong with her. So she was anti-negative. So they thought, you know, maybe she had some type of autoimmune disorder, but all of the tests and everything came back, you know, negative. So it wasn't until she started going into kidney failure and they actually did a biopsy that they realized that she had lupus. And by that time, you know, she's already <laughs> in kidney failure and it's, it's kind of really late. And the treatment for autoimmune disorders really, you know, it's not, very robust, you know, you usually throw steroids at it or, you know, anti-malarials or something like that. And I had really felt that at the time I was working at the local hospital system as a finance coordinator there and, and I would help out in the emergency room and registration. And I would just see all of the people coming in and utilizing, like one of the questions that we would ask is, you know, who's your primary care physician? And a lot of them times, at least here in Dayton, they didn't have one, you know, they were just utilizing the emergency room as their primary care physician. So I think just seeing the overall need for primary care um, in general, like in my life with my mom, you know, having her primary care doctor coordinate all of her care with all of her specialists, you know, and, and helping her navigate through the health system. And then just seeing a need for it overall was what drove me to um, go into medicine. And not only go into medicine, um, I applied to the local um, osteopathic school. They had a really huge focus on primary care, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is like when we're young and we really want to help people, uh, we basically are going to subject ourselves to this grueling, you know, sometimes oppressive schooling and training where a lot of us do, you know, some of us, many of us do get sick or do get too stressed out or um, even age during medical school and residency just so that we can help people. So, um, so I'm, you know, we're just all proud of each other that we all you know, are getting through medical school and are doing it. And I mean, that's a feat in and of itself. Yeah, I definitely knew it was something I wanted to do at a young age. I just didn't know how to get a foot in the door, you know, so you see myself like trying to improve my application, you know, by getting this degree or doing this research or, you know, doing this, you know, type of thing and just trying to get a foot in the door. Um, especially as a first gen, you really don't know <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit about, um, what started happening, um, this last year and, um, uh, some of the things that kind of, you know, led up to it and what your plans were in terms of, um, like, you know, having a baby and, um, also, you know, having great accolades and all the accomplishments during medical school, um, so that you can attain, you know, your position, especially during match. Yeah. So I think, well, one of the reasons that I ended up going back to medical school was, you know, through the support of my husband, we had actually just literally bought a house um like I had a career like this was a career change for me so I literally two weeks after we signed and closed on our house here in Dayton I got the call from medical school saying that I had got in <laughs> and I had to um share that with my husband and he you know both of his parents were DOs he was actually at the time finishing up his doctoral degree in mechanical engineering so um he was just super supportive and said, you know, we'll make it work and everything. So, um, and that was his, I would say that would be his answer for everything. You know, I would come home with some type of dream or uh, like I was always one of those people who struggled with saying no and I have 50,000 things going on at once, you know, and I just functioned that way. Like, um, so throughout medical school, I, um, my first three years, I became like this food insecurity coordinator at the local um, uh, free clinic, and we were able to develop a screening project where we would screen patients for food insecurity, and then we developed a relationship with Mid-Ohio Food Bank um, to like refer them to the local food banks in their neighborhood. And from that, we generated like an IRB study and funding and from that. And we were able to match up and help um, address some of the food insecurity issues in Franklin County here in Ohio. Wow. Um, I also was the um, national, um, the national executive council for the Student American Academy of Osteopathy, which is like the OMM club for, um, you know, student organizations. So 
I served as secretary treasurer and then I was voted to be chair the following week and then the, or the following year. And then this year I was um, immediate past chair and just, you know, providing guidance to the executive council, you know, with the three years of experience I had with helping with that group. So you were a board member basically yeah. of this group. Wow. So all. Yeah. So every year, like, you know, you have the, the, the national conferences, you know, for mm-hmm. organizations. So the cool thing about SAO is we had our own um, student track and we would plan all of our workshops and um, like speakers for our own conference. So that was pretty much the, the whole job for us, but we also had our own events like an auction, we had our own board of governors meetings, you know, we had our own um, fun run, 5k fun runs and just poster competitions and all that stuff that we would coordinate and um, organize for all of our student members. So like the Renaissance woman of... <laughs> During medical school, I don't, it's a lot of work. Uh, if anybody has ever done that and create a conference and be on a board and go to medical school, I just, I remember when I was in med school, all I could do was just go to med school and I could barely do that in and of itself. So, yeah, that's a lot. Last year I was chair and it was, you know, so I was over the, you know, organizing everything and I had my executive council that I worked with. And our conference was in Colorado and at Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor. And it was the second week of March. So that was last year when all the COVID, all the shutdowns, like that happened literally that week while we were at conference. And so everything was being canceled. Speakers were pulling out. There were all these travel restrictions and I'm trying to like still organize and put out all these fires and pull in all these speakers and replacements. It was so, it was a lot. Oh, that sounds like, (laughs) sounds awful. (laughs) It was a lot, but I I mean, we definitely got it done, but it was, it was something that I can laugh at now. Um, Yeah. I mean, they're like small uh, interruptions, but they're kind of very annoying in the moment, especially when you're stressed and you're tired and you've built so much, you've worked so hard on it. And then it just comes crashing down. Um, Though, yeah, it, it, that is but. a great summary. That is a great summary of all the things that I was going through. <laughs> Shoot, yeah, COVID. Okay, um, so and then after that, um, uh, what started developing? Yeah, so I came. So that was last year, taking me up to um, chair. So those were kind of some of the extracurricular things that I, you know, was a part of. I also did a teaching year, a teaching fellowship for my school. So in between my third and fourth year of uh, clinical rotations, I came back, took the year to help teach the year one and two students who kind of like serve as adjunct faculty for LMM in the Department of Family Medicine, teaching clinical skills. And, you know, um, our school was in the middle of redeveloping a curriculum for year one and two students. So I got to be a part of like the curriculum development and things like that. So that was taking me up into, you know, this July, I had went to medical school initially for primary care. And during my third year, I fell in love with OB. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe 
this is what I want to do. So I had that teaching year to kind of figure things out, research things a little bit more. I love the diversity of OB. I loved, you know, women's health. And I was like, okay, this is probably where I want to be at. So I was building up my application to try to become more competitive for OB in general. And then um, I, the teaching year also provided uh, time for me and my husband were actively trying to start our family. So it was a good time to, you know, take a year off and um, try to start our family and at least have more of a set schedule and routine, you know, among us. So um, then we're in the middle of this pandemic. Um, they had pulled everyone off the of rotation. So the last semester, midway through, we went completely virtual. So just trying to support um, and, and transition to in-person learning to virtual learning. And unfortunately, the things that I was teaching, um, they're all like hands-on experiences. Um, so that was, you know, pretty tricky, along with, you know, putting in for audition rotations, and you don't know what that's going to look like. But um, July came and they opened everything up and we were going to be able to go back out on rotations. So we we're pretty excited about that. And so it'd been about a year since I was on clinical rotations due to the teaching commitment. And I was really excited. The first week of July was when we came back. So I had a audition rotation at our local OB hospital, um, our OB program. And I had worked Monday through Friday. I started off in labor and delivery. So those were, you know, kind of long hours. And then I picked up a call shift on Saturday. So July 5th of 2020 was a Sunday. And I had woke up and me and my husband used to make these graduation baskets for um, my friends who I would have graduated with, you know, if I didn't do the teaching year. So um, they didn't have a graduation or any of that. So we ended up making these baskets for them, loaded up the car, and we we're going to drive out to Columbus to kind of drop them off, you know, to everyone's doorstep and everything. And we drive off our street. We live out in the country. We, so we turn on like State Route 41, which is this country road. Um, and I'm driving down the street. It's a Sunday. And um, the notice that we're going northbound and there's cars going southbound who are slowing down to turn into like a church parking lot because it's Sunday afternoon. And I happened to look up and there was a car, um, a big Ford F-150 truck who the guy was driving with a suspended license, not wearing a seatbelt, happened to be watching YouTube videos, realized that he was going to rear end the cars in front of him and decided to drive into our lane and hit us head on instead. And um, I mean, it's about that 55 miles per hour is the speed limit. Um, there really wasn't any, anything I could do. I was the one driving. Uh, my husband died instantly. And I 
was um, had somewhat loss of consciousness at the scene. I woke up to like people trying to help me. Um, I had to be cut out of the car and care flighted to the nearest trauma center in Dayton. So I had an open femur fracture, a commutated tibial fracture, open tibial fracture and fibular fracture and an open fracture to the DIP joint of my, or the PIP joint of my hand, uh, my dominant hand where I had like sheared off all of the skin and partially tore all the ligaments as well. Um, I had some internal bleeding. They had a positive um, fast exam when they, I arrived into the emergency room. So they, I ended up spending a week in ICU and another week in med surge and then two weeks at a rehab facility. And then instead of going to a nursing home, my sister had basically redid their walk-in basement and, and bathroom area down there, made it more um, handicap accessible for me. And I spent the next two months there uh, where I actively did outpatient rehab, um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and I started uh, grief counseling. So um, like you at that time on that Sunday, um, on July 5th, this last year, we're going out and again, helping people and um, trying to do something good for the world. And then all of a sudden uh, this happened. And so I, did you ever think about that? Like you're just doing so much good in the world and then this happened. I think it's just one of those things where <laughs> what I've learned this past year for me, which was never my viewpoint before, I was always one of those things, one of those people, like if I work really hard, you know, I have control over my life and, you know, if I put in the work, then, you know, good things will happen. And the biggest life lesson that I've went through this past year is that, you know, some sometimes things happen in life and you have no control over them whatsoever. And for someone who, is like one of those active planners, like where I see myself in five years and 10 years, you know, I think um, there's no way that I would have ever believed that I would, I would be a widow at 34 years old, um, you know, just, or my husband would, would die at 32 years old, you know? So like, those are kind of things, like even if, you know, I always have a plan A, B and C, but I would have never even fathomed or projected that it could be, you know, a reality um, for me. So where, um, yeah, well, I mean, these things and our people in our lives, you just never know. And to live, you know, day by day, just with as much love and as much, you know, force as possible, because you just never know what's going to happen, um, because we don't have control. And, um, and I think that's one of the toughest things in hearing people's stories and people's tragedy is that you just never think it's going to happen to you. Right. And this grief and this loss and your husband, who you were so incredibly close to, who was an amazing man. Um, and, 
you lost him. Yeah. I mean, he's literally one of the reasons why I even continued to to pursue, you know, medicine. I, I didn't get into medical school my first attempt or my second attempt. It was my third attempt going into, you know, like applying to actually get into medical school. Um, so, I mean, he was always had complete faith in, in me and in my purpose and, you know, was there to help me through everything, you know. I, I mean, there are times where I would be so exhausted, like the commute to school was an hour, you know, each way. And so I would come home, um, especially during, you know, year three, you know, you work 12, 16 hour days, and then you have two hour drive, you know, home, um, you know, back and forth. I, I mean, I would just literally be crawling into bed, you know, when I got here, you know, and he was always there to support me through everything um, and just, you know, encourage me to keep going. So it's definitely been really hard. Um, and I'm still actively grieving. Like in my mind, um, I'm still very much married to my husband. You know, like I, we had a, a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship and, um, I just woke up in the hospital and I remember my dad, you know, asking me if I knew what happened and telling me that I had been in a car accident and I, I knew, I knew he was dead. And my dad's like, you know, well, do you remember? How do you know? And I'm just like, because he would have been here when I woke up, you know, there's no way he would have ever been anywhere else. If he was, if he was physically able, he would have been right by my side. And I, um, I woke up and, you know, my dad having those tough conversations with me. Um, he was still in the morgue. Um, I, I mean, I had been out for, you know, just sedated and intubated for over a week. And he was still in the morgue when I woke up and, um, my dad had the paperwork for me to sign uh, just to be able to release him out of the morgue. And I was so upset that they had left him there by himself, you know, the whole time. And his parents were just like, you know, I was like, well, what does his parents want, you know, to do? And they said, well, whatever you want to do, you know? And that, that was like literally the first conversation that I had with my dad trying to sign paperwork with my broken hand um, just to get him out of the morgue. So um, I decided to, cremate him and then um, just because of his mom being sick and obviously not being able to travel in a pandemic and you know there's no way we're going to be able to have a funeral and I, we never talked about those things I mean who who talks about <laughs> I, I mean who talks about those type of things like what are your wishes when you die like I we just thought we had more time um, so when I got out of the hospital in August, um, I started actively planning a virtual memorial service for him. Um, he, his family lived in the state of Washington, but he grew up in Michigan and he went to um, do all of his graduate school in Texas. And, you know, he had dealt with um, just working at the military, at the Air Force uh, Research Lab, um, he had dealt with people from all over the world, 
you know? And so we decided to do a virtual memorial service just to give everyone access to that. And I meet it on August 31st, um, which was his birthday. Oh, so wow. um, we did, we did the virtual memorial service that day. His godfather, who was a retired priest, was the one who, um, you know, ran the service. And I mean, he was the one who um, blessed him when he came in this world. And he was the one who, you know, did the service and everything um, with him. You wow. Know. That's amazing that it worked out that way, that he was there. Yeah. So, um we were able to organize that and I I just wanted to put something together just to honor him. He was such a remarkable person. And so um, shortly after that, I decided to um, return back to school. I was now able to walk. I mean, the injuries that I sustained, I wasn't even able to sit on the side of the bed. Um, I was like a three person assist, just, you know, to sit on the side of the bed. I couldn't use the bathroom by myself. Um, I have videos of me trying to stand and walk for the first time. And I mean, the, the therapy was just really intense, but, you know, two months out from the accident, I was to the point where I could go along pretty well. Um, of walking without a walker for the most part. And um, I was just trying to figure out what it would look like for me to return and try to graduate with my class. At that point, I you know, had already took a year off for teaching and I just wanted to be done. And I knew that just mentally, I needed to get out of the house. Like I couldn't just sit in my grief. And I worried that if I, um, just stayed out of school for the whole fall semester that I would I wouldn't have returned to finish and I felt that would be a slap in my husband's face you know just as much as we sacrificed and as much of our life as we put off you know just while I was pursuing the shared dream of becoming the first position in my family um I just felt that it was best for me to return and so um, when the accident happened, they had canceled my board exams and all of my fall schedules. So um, they actually let me transfer to the Dayton campus, which was closer for me. Um, I still wasn't driving. I had so much PTSD from driving. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, I was in a small car accident and I couldn't even get back into driving. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just... I remember the first time, um, for the most part, my family had, you know, taken me to and from appointments and everything and just getting back to therapy this whole time. Um, but it was coming to a point where I would need to return to, you know, in-person stuff, um, clinical rotations. And my dad had, like, drove me out to this parking lot to have me do driving maneuvers. And I was so angry at him and I did it. And we got back in the car, I got back on the passenger side and I just had this complete visceral reaction. Like I just started crying and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I just started vomiting like all over the car. Um, like I couldn't move and it was just, 
I, I, I was just, it was horrible. Like I, and that was like my first attempt at trying to drive, you know, and I can just continue to gradually improve and, and work on it, um, especially through therapy and everything, but that PTSD response, yeah, does become visceral. It becomes part of the whole body. So when you're going to do it again, it's like you're reliving that experience again. And so it's almost like try and, and most people have to um, with the PTSD in order to get through the experience and let the visceral response go and release. Um, you have to, you know, go back there. And it's so incredibly emotionally hard um so i can't imagine yeah it, it took me several months um to just to be able to to drive myself um and even after that like um, my family always had someone in the car with me you know to make sure that i was okay um but i went back to my school and you know expressed my wishes and you know the whole question was, well, are you going to enter into match this year? And, and I just said, you know, one of three things is going to happen. You know, I can try to return back to clinical rotations and I'm not ready physically, emotionally, and mentally, or I can return and meet all my graduation requirements and not match, or I could return meet all my graduation requirements and match into an ob specialty of, you know, which was what I was hoping for. And I just kind of went forward because in my mind, any of those scenarios were not as bad as what I had already went through and, and survived. So um, I had about two weeks and I sat for the board exam and actually passed. And at that point in time, like for me to sit somewhere for nine hours was just a feat in itself. And I remember like, I just hope that I pass and I don't have to, you know, <laughs> redo anything again. And, and I just felt <laughs> I was so thankful that I actually had that hurdle. Um, I did uh, virtual classes for about a month during that time. Um, and just continued my therapy and everything and, and getting stronger. And then uh, the beginning of November, I returned back to uh, clinical, in-person clinical rotations. And I specifically went back to the same rotation I was on, you know, during the accident because I had only completed one week. And so for me to get credit, I at least had to do another week. So we just did another month rotation at that same place. And um, I remember it was my second week into the rotation. My brother had called me and he said, you know, mom's been sick for about 10 days. She's just had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, like, you know, typical GI symptoms, which wasn't uncommon for her. She had um, received the kidney transplant in April 2018. So they were still trying to figure out like her anti-rejection meds, like she couldn't really tolerate tacrolimus that well. Um, so they were still, you know, shifting and trying to figure out her anti-rejection drug uh, regimen. 
but it never got to a point where it was like that long and it never got to a point where she couldn't, you know, even take tolerate oral hydration. So um, I had just got off of a night shift and I said, you know, called and talked to her. I felt like her speech was a little bit slurred and um, I was just like, well, at least let me take you to the hospital. Um, we need to try to protect your kidneys. Um, you probably just need like at, at the very least fluids and um, labs, you know, to be done. But since she's immunosuppressed and has autoimmune diseases, like there's no way that you're going to be able to, whatever this is, you're not going to be able to, you know, beat it on your own. You're going to need help. It's been 10 days, you know. So um, I met her up at the emergency room and they only let one of us in you know, because of all the COVID stuff. And so I was like, I'll stay with her. Um, it was normal for me to go to her appointments and things like that. Um, so we're there and they're running scans and labs and all these tests. And the last thing they did was a COVID test and it came back positive and she had COVID. And I remember them saying, you know, well, you're not having any of the these respiratory symptoms or anything we're going to still keep you overnight just because of your medical history you know um and just try to get some more fluids and stuff in you and and you'll probably be discharged tomorrow so i stayed with her until they took her up to the um the inpatient unit and that night she started having respiratory symptoms and so that was November 23rd. And she, um, she progressively declined every day um, and ended up passing away December 17th of 2020. So not even five months after um, <laughs> I lost my husband and, and came back, um, my mom ended up passing away due to complications from COVID. And I was actually on a rotation in Cleveland um, at the time. And I had really felt really mixed feelings about leaving and going um, away because Cleveland is about two and a half hours for me. And just knowing that she's in the hospital and I had sat down and talked to my family and they were like, you know, mom would want you to keep going and, you know, we'll handle everything here. But every morning I would call in and talk to the night shift nurse, get all of her labs. And I had like this whole spreadsheet that I kept and um, see how she did overnight. And then I would do the same thing when I got home from whatever rotation I was on. And, um, even up to the day, and maybe it's just like being a medical student, you, you know enough to be uncomfortable, but you don't know, you know, everything. Um, but I, maybe it was just me being naive. I, I was still hopeful up until um, like four days prior. Uh, she, that morning I had called and she had the best labs. They had transferred her to Ohio State from our local hospital just because um, she was having fluid overload and she still had like, you know, the, the AKI kidney failure. Um, so they were trying to, you know, send her back to where she got her kidney transplant. 
and they had did CRT that that night and the next morning she had like the best labs and she you know best ABG and everything else that she had for like over a week and a half and so I was just really hopeful I went into rotation the first day of my rotation up in Cleveland pretty confident that you know we were on things were starting you know to make ahead and turn around and she was going to get better and then within three hours um she just stopped ventilating like her pco2 went from like 56 to 104 and oh wow went from 7.29 to 7.0 wow um, and every eight subsequent abg that they ran after that um it just kept downtrending and got progressively worse and so I had changed her status from like a full code to like a DNRCCA. And I would just had to like explain to my family what was going on. Like, you know, she's not gonna come back from that. You know, like she's so acidotic, like her organs aren't gonna be able to function in that type of environment. And mm -hmm. so um, she ended up passing away. That was on a Monday. She ended up passing away Thursday. And so I stayed up in Cleveland, uh, finished up my surgeries and stuff on Thursday, um, and then drove home thinking that I would at least get to see her because they weren't letting anyone in the hospital. So I was like, well, when they bring her body back to Dayton, we should be able to see her. Um, but we weren't, we were never able to see her um, because her cause of death was listed as, you know, complications from COVID. So we, they weren't even permitted to open the bag. Um, yeah. So um, we ended up getting her cremated and I just followed the same format that I did for my husband and organizing um, his memorial service, you know, virtual memorial service. And um, thankfully uh, my husband's godfather, you know, came in and, and did the service again, this time for my mother. And um, a couple of days um, before we did the service, I found out that the guy who hit us had finally been charged. Um, so this whole time he's just been, you know, going home, like nothing's happened um, to his family, spending the holidays with his family, everything. Um, they charged him with, five misdemeanors and with the highest one being first degree which was vehicular manslaughter and they made a deal with him if he pled guilty to the vehicular manslaughter charge then they would drop all the other charges so vehicular manslaughter in the state of ohio is up to a maximum of 180 days in jail a thousand dollar fine and three months to two years of license suspension, which his license was already suspended for the third time at the point of the accident. So um, I just kind of felt that was a huge slap in the face. And I was contacted on February 19th um, that his sentencing trial would be February 22nd and they wanted me to come in for a victim statement. So that Monday, I 
had reached out to his family to see if there was anything they wanted to say, me to say on his behalf, on their behalf, and they didn't. Um, and I went down there and I seen the guy who hit us for the first time. And I listened to the um, defense attorney basically minimize his actions, stating that it was a minor traffic violation and that he shouldn't get any time in jail, that he was a good man. You know, he felt like the recommendations to the court were um, <laughs> too much. Um, and so they were petitioning for even, you know, the, 90, uh, the 180 days in jail to be dropped. I made my victim statement and he ended up getting 90 days in jail, um, two years probation, the $1,000 fine and two years of license suspension. And literally the next week, he hadn't even served like a week in jail. They were already uh, motioning for that to be um, thrown out. Um, and thankfully that was denied. So he hadn't even spent a week in jail. He said that he had a wife and kids and family to take care of and a job. And um, they felt as though the, the, you know, the sentencing wasn't warranted for not only taking my husband's life, but, you know, maybe me in the process and changing my life as well. Um, so that all happened the end of February. And then I come into match week on March 15th and get the email that I had not matched. And into your OB guide. Yeah. yeah. Not only did I not match, I did not match. I tried to do the supplemental application um, and match into like a, you know, general surgery prelim year or transition year somewhere um, that did not happen. Um, so here I am. I still remain in high spirits. I do strongly believe that everything happens for a reason. Um, and just talking with you and I, you know, interacting and telling you my story, I think I, I feel that, um, with how everything has <laughs> built up over these past couple of months. And I just felt that, you know, maybe it was a good thing, you know, maybe I'm being forced to kind of sit and be still and slow down um, where I can, you know, kind of recollect myself and refocus and, you know, continue to get better physically, mentally, and emotionally and, and grieve. Um, I do strongly believe that everything happens for a reason. I, I have given up trying to figure out <laughs> any, of, any of this, um, um, any of why any of this stuff has happened over the past few months, but I remain having a great um, support system and I just wake up every day and I kind of find solace in knowing that I do believe in God. I do believe that there's the reason I'm still here and that there's something for me to do still here. 
and I'm just kind of sitting and being still and trying to realize, you know, and become more in tune with that purpose. So, so when you um, are thinking about like next steps, do you just kind of not even not even think about planning anymore in terms about next steps until your kind of faith and your spirit guides you, um, you know, when the right time is? So I think when you've been through some of the life changing events like this, um, I would say that you lose that confidence or, you know, like that purpose, like you just know, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, like, especially for someone who plans and envisions things like me, like clearly the life that I envisioned um, is no longer gonna come to fruition. Like, um, and one of the first questions I asked the nurse when I was able to communicate was, you know, did the pregnancy test come back, you know, positive? Because um, like I said, we were actively still trying to start our family and it, and it didn't. So it's just one of those things like the life that I envision isn't going to come to fruition. And it's one of those things where it kind of paralyzes you, where you are hesitant to take, to move or take any any step forward because you don't know what you don't know what to do or what your path is and things that you felt were so clear um, you just kind of lose that confidence like um, a lot of I think a lot of my confidence was you know fed through from my husband and, and his faith in me and, and belief in me and support of me and it's now like trying to take this where I, I wouldn't say that I was reckless before, but I knew that, you know, we were partnership and I could move freely into, you know, pursuing my d dreams and, and ambitions. And now it's like, I have to kind of take a pause and see, well, well, is this really a good idea? You know, like kind of think through things a little bit more than I would have before. Um, and just making sure that, you know, it makes sense. I think I'm on social media, my dream, my, my, my handle is dreamchaser937 on like all, all of my social media, um, like Instagram and Twitter. And it's just one of those things where I, I felt freely to, you know, chase any dream or desire that I had. And I knew that I had that steadiness and, um, and my husband and, you know, our foundation and our marriage. And now it's just like, well, it's just me, you know, and does this still make sense for me to pursue, you know, because obviously when I embarked on this journey, my life looked totally different. Yeah. And it's time for like building up that trust and connecting with yourself again and, um, and your faith and, um, did you, I mean, even talking about like the lack of confidence and the lack of trust, did you feel like 
I mean, if you, you know, believed in God, did you feel like there wasn't anything there for you anymore? Like no one was watching out for you? Like. I wouldn't say that. I didn't feel like anything was there for me anymore. I think I have and, and remain and continue to struggle with my relationship with God. Um, I still talk to him and, you know, I, but it's, it's so hard for me to, to endure. Like, I, I think that's a lot for one person to go through in such a short amount of time during one of the most challenging, you know, mentally and emotionally periods of, of my career, you know? Um, but I do remain steadfast in my faith. Like, you know, there's a reason why I'm still here. By all means, I should be, you know, with my husband. You know, I, I, the point of impact was on my side. You know, I was the first person, you know, that, that was hit, you know, head on. And um, I shouldn't be here, you know, having a conversation with you, let alone um, being able to walk around and, and even pursue my dreams, you know, and finish my education. So. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that you're here and that you're talking through this and you're even just reliving, you know, what's happened this last year and to even have just that little tiny whisper that it's guiding you towards something is incredibly powerful. And I think it's giving you a lot of strength right now, even though it might not seem like it because it does feel like, I mean, sometimes you're walking on clouds kind of, and you're just not sure where you're going and you're not sure why things have happened and you want to know. And that whole, you know, next step for you in terms of sitting and listening is I think one of the most important parts of reconnecting with yourself because a lot of times, especially as women doctors, um, we give a lot to everyone else and, and we, and, and we're giving a lot to ourselves in terms of accomplishing, accomplishing and achieving and getting accolades and all of that, um, while helping people. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of our energy is given away to others in order to help them leaving less for ourselves. Um, and so I think that whole trusting and building the confidence is bringing back sort of a ton more self-love and giving a lot more to yourself during this time of grief and processing all that's happened to you and sort of building your energy back. And it's all for you this time. It's all for you, like giving what you would to your patients and giving what you would to your family is just really is for you because you are the most important person, you know, the most important spirit in order to be able to give, you know, later on. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've always struggled with um, before the accident was saying no, I felt like I ran around with, you know, tape on like a, you know, and just like, it's like superwoman syndrome, I think is what they kind of talk about where, you do and you give and you keep going and you, you know, you have this activity and that activity and you have to do all these things. And um, after the accident, it was just one of those things where it really puts in perspective what's important. Um, I started saying, you know, 
no, I'm not going to do this. And I'm, I don't want to spend my time doing that, you know, and this isn't important to me. And I don't think I would have ever came to those realizations had it not been for having such a life-changing events, you know, come and put a lot of things in like perspective for me. So I even say that before, um, not matching, like before the accident, I would have thought that it would have been the end of the world had I not matched, you know, into somewhere. And now I just, I mean, I remember opening up the email and I just kind of laughed and it was just like, you know, this isn't even the worst thing that's happened to me, you know, and it's just something else that I need to figure out and try to overcome. And so um, sometimes failure is a part of the process. And um, I've always been one of those people, um, I have like my mother's resilience and determination where, you know, I am okay with, you know, failure, it just forces me to refocus and, you know, come back that much stronger. And so I, I would say, you know, before the accident, if this would have happened, I would have thought it would have been the end of the world for me. Um, but now it's just, okay, this is what I, you know, need to figure out my next steps and what I'm going to do. So and do you find, you know, their spirit is with you and supporting you um, in a way that um, you might not have thought possible, your mother and your husband? So I, I have always, like, I, I, I keep, I mean, this is like a really hard tell, like I wear my husband's uh, wedding band um, around my necklace. So like, you'll see me play with my necklace or I, I think it's just one of those ticks that I have now. Um, I have never felt without my husband um, this whole time. And I think maybe that's why I'm, I'm still, you know, fighting and still standing and still trying to move forward. Um, I have his ashes and his urn is on my nightstand. Like I, I was adamant about staying in our house um afterwards um you know my family has moved in here with me um and so many people have taken steps to um change their lives just you know just to support me um and seeing my dreams and my goals um but i i feel like out of all my mother's children i look like her i act like her you know i sound like her it's just it's just a part of me, you know, and there were so many, even when my mom was here, um, she was, you know, always sick, you know, always in and out of the hospital. Um, when I was in the accident, she was sick and hadn't, you know, really got out of the bed, you know, that much and everything and got the phone call and she rallied and she was putting on, you know, her clothes to go down, you know, to the hospital to see me, you know, and I remember um, my dad talking about them arguing, you know, because he wanted her to stay, you know, with COVID and, you know, stay out of this. And she's just like, you must be crazy if you think I'm going to, you know, stay at home while my child's in the hospital. And she would not leave until she laid eyes on me, you know, and with putting her health and everything at risk, you know? And so 
I think there were moments um, as my dad is, you know, shuttling me back and forth to um, appointment after appointment, you know, there were times where he would just kind of look at me like um, he would call me little Sharita because my mom's name was Sharita. Um, and he just like, oh my gosh, there's just so many things that we would say, you know, or he would see me battling through this. And it's like, I, I know how to get through this. My mom has been battling back and fighting. You know, she's written a blueprint for me to follow, you know, through dignity and grace and how to, you know, overcome hardship. And it was just, that was the example that I, you know, had to follow um, through her. So I definitely have always been close to both of my parents, but definitely my mother in general, so. Yeah, that's amazing. Um sounds like your family is an amazing supportive family and um i think that's great that you've had that some people you know don't have that and i think um it says something that even your i think sister and her husband aren't they coming to move into your house and yeah they're here um i mean my like when it came time for me to be discharged so I went to the rehab center on the first day they're trying to figure out you know what your discharge plan is you know which is normal um so even though they knew I'd be there for two weeks or longer um you know well where's she gonna be once she meets these milestones you know and so I my sister was just like she's coming home with me you know and like literally that day um I have pictures of my brother-in-law like carrying out the, the um, bathrooms and all the stuff downstairs just to make it handicap accessible, just to be able to wheel into, you know, the shower or putting up the, the rails in this, you know, for me, making it more handicap accessible and just redoing and gutting, literally gutting like that whole basement in the two weeks that I was in the hospital because there was no doubt in her mind that I would be coming you know, to home with her. Um, and so um, I, I'm on social media and I write like kind of actively about, I used to write a lot more about those first moments and I would call my my sister um, drill sergeant caretaker because <laughs> she, <laughs> she would always be like, you know, having this watchful eye over me as she's working for home, making sure that I'm not, you know, getting into trouble and of course you know i'm defiant defiantly trying to go up and down steps when i have overdoing it <laughs> <laughs> but, um she's she's always been um just the way our family structure is like she's the oldest you know of us and so everything maybe with my dad being in the military that family structure of you know everything flows through her so um, she really, growing up, like she taught me how to read. She used to, you know, take me to all my basketball stuff. Like um, she's definitely always um, been present and a force in my life. And so this was like no different. She just really, really thankful for her dedication because she has sacrificed and uprooted so much. Um, wow. Just, just to be present for me during this time, along with dealing with her own grief, you know, of losing our mother and everything. So um, 
she has been supportive this whole time. Well, that's incredible. I, I think it's amazing. Um, and um, I wanted to ask you, um, kind of going back a little bit um, on the car accident and um, the man who had killed your husband um, and the expression of anger and some of the feelings uh, that you went through, because I find that, you know, when we're talking about us being women professionals or women doctors, um, sometimes we feel that it's not right to express our anger. And even though it's a normal um, emotional process that I think needs to happen with the grief process and also the things that happen to us that get taken away. Um, and so how, how do you feel like, and you might even still be processing anger, but do you feel like you're able to express it in a certain way or how do you feel that's been going for you? I would say the overwhelming emotion that I, like you feel this whole myriad of emotions and not only like negative emotions. I think the biggest thing that I felt through this whole thing is helpless. You know, you just feel like this thing has happened to you. Um, and just the personality, I, you know, I am like, I, I never feel like I'm, a victim of anything, you know, I survived, you know, this, this happened to me and I had no control over it. Um, but you just feel this sense of helplessness, you know, and it, it's one of those, I, I, I abhor that feeling, you know, it's just like, no matter how tall you, you stand, you know, you try to put one foot in front of the other, and it's just all these things keep happening, you know, and, and just through someone's negligence, they've completely changed your life forever. And I would say I bounce back and forth to you from this sense of helplessness to this rage of you know, like I, the thing that I just keep going back to is you, your actions have taken someone's life and you don't even have the dignity, um, you know, to, to sit there and be like, yeah, I'll serve the 90 days in jail like that's all you have to do is 90 days in jail you know I wish that I could um I wish that I could serve 90 days in jail and, and then my life go back to what it was you know like this is the only thing that that's being asked of you and you you know as far as you being accountable for someone's life and not only the loss of life of my husband but how much my life has changed and you can't even own up to that, you know, and they're still, they just set, filed another on March 25th, so on my mother's birthday, they just filed another motion for him to be released, and he, he had, hadn't even been in jail for, for a whole month. Wow. And it's just like, 
I have I have a family and I have a job and I well, it's nice that you were able to have a family. You know, I was just trying to get mine started. You know, yeah. yeah. It's nice that you have that to go home to. And I think it's one of those things where I was just kind of enraged for the longest time, especially after the sentencing trial. Um, you have all these negative emotions and, but they're warranted, you know, it's, it's, it's warranted, but then they're so dark and they're so, and they're so deep that you don't want to just sit in those emotions and let it change who you are. And so it's just trying to find this balance of fighting my way back out of that, you know, like, yes, this, this is what I'm feeling and they're warranted. And, but then not letting it overwhelm me and consume me to where I can't move forward. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely um, something that I'm still working on. It's a balance that I'm still trying to find. Uh, I have good days and bad days. But I think what I keep going back to is it would have been a lot easier for me to accept or come to terms with if he had taken any type of ownership or responsibility for his actions. But it's just like, even from the first moment in the accident, he was saying how it wasn't his fault, you know, and, and, and he's still, you know, not taking accountability for for taking his life. Yeah. He wasn't sorry. He, he, yeah, he didn't even hold himself accountable. He didn't think it was his fault. Um, didn't want to admit that deep down. And I think you mentioned that he was having multiple recurrent um, kind of misdemeanors. And yeah. He's not his, you know, first trip to the rodeo. He, um, like I said, he had his license suspended three times. He's had several traffic violations. He's had a few criminal uh, violations as well, you know. Um, and just living in Clark County, I feel like the police had really built a case for him to be charged with um, aggravated vehicular homicide, you know, for him to be charged with a felony. Um, but for whatever reason, our prosecuting attorney's office didn't let it go they only charged him with you know the misdemeanor and then they made a deal with him you know probably to get the the case through and and closed and the judge did the best that he could under what he could actually charge him with so he actually suspended 90 days of the 180 day sentence just in lieu of you know being able to add the two years probation on top of that. So he gave him the maximum sentence that he could in his power, um, unfortunately. Um, I think in these type of accidents where, you know, you have someone with a loss of life um, throughout the country, it's not really um, prosecuted, you know, to the, to the maximum extent that it could. So right. I've, I've had several people reach out to me with similar stories and, you know, and 
we will be only getting probation or, you know, 30 days. And I think that's, for whatever reason, I, you know, our law system goes through and aggressively, um, you know, aggressively sentences some things and other things not so much. Yeah, like drugs, for example, definitely drugs versus homicide. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, witnessed that too. And that's unfortunate. And this process of forgiveness is incredibly difficult when you want to forgive for yourself, not necessarily for him, um, but for yourself. But we have to process those emotions and those emotions like the rage really get out of control and they can consume us. And we kind of have to do it slowly and gradually. And that's why it takes time. It does take time and forgiveness does take time. And we're just working towards that. Um, there will be a time where it won't settle so much in your heart, causing all that fire and all that rage, but, but it is, it's incredibly difficult and it takes a lot of energy out of you. Um, and to rein that in is also another, um, aspect of your strength and of your power, um, as this incredible woman who's gone through some of the worst tragedies this last year, especially in the light of COVID, you know, when people say, oh, COVID happened, it was the worst 2020. Well, I mean, now we have to put things in perspective that it really wasn't that bad. Um, what if this happened? You know, what if this happened to you? And so always having that um, kind of foundation of gratitude for, you know, what we do have and that many of us didn't get sick. We didn't end up in the hospital. I mean, it's, it's something that we really have to focus on um, is that gratitude. And I think, you know, not only navigating through this, you know, during COVID, but also during your fourth year of medical school, you know, like trying to, I, I still have to, I'm able to graduate with my class on May 8th, but I still have to do rotations through June 6th, you know, just to meet my graduation requirements so that my degree can be conferred, you know, and so during all this time, um, since I came back in September um, and, and embarked on this journey of trying to finish my medical degree, I'm, I'm still showing up and I'm still doing the work and I still go to rotations every day. And, you know, I'm still trying to do the best that I can. And I think um, I'm thankful that I have that to focus on. You know, if I didn't have my patients to interact with, if I didn't have, you know, this active learning where I'm, you know, and just grateful that even though I'm, you know, I'm a little slow walking around the hospital at times, you know, just physically that um, I'm able to do it, you know, and I'm grateful to even be back and interact and, and be in this setting. So I, you know, the, the gratitude that I have just, just being here is, is something, you know, so um, it's definitely, um, it's definitely something that I am thankful for and I will remain thankful for. Yeah. Well, you're also incredibly determined. Um, and I think that 
drive also helps with that sense of purpose too. And um, I also just appreciate you being on the podcast today. And I'm sure you're already helping tons of people just by talking about this. And um, if some of the listeners want to reach out to you or if they want to follow you, I mean, and listen to your story, um, is there a place for them to do so? Like you mentioned Twitter or yeah, so on Twitter and Instagram, um, my handle is dreamchaser937. Um, and then on Facebook, um, I'm just listed as um, Danielle Dukes Medbalski, which I will write that in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, but um, just, I think one of the reasons why I, I wanted to come on and, and share my story is I think, especially as you get older, you know, your life, you get to the point where you're getting older, your family's getting older, you know, and things start happening, like your, your parents start aging and, you know, their health may go or, you know, you start living, losing loved ones in your family and you never had to necessarily deal with those issues before. Um, I know several uh, friends in medical school who have dealt with, you know, losing a parent or a loved one. And I think we all kind of lean on each other and, I just want to kind of normalize talking about, you know, these, these emotions and these experiences, like, you know, by the time when you're brought into this world, you know, it's like you're running in this race and at no point you, do you know when you're going to cross your, your finish line, you know, and you have no clue what that's going to look like. And I don't think we really talk about, those type of dealing with loss and and just life in general it's something that we all go through and we often you know lean on each other and and talk about it a little bit more um i wouldn't say that the grief counseling was such a great help i think the thing that really helped me was interacting with people who had been through similar experiences and just seeing them uh, at different points in their journey of grief and that, you know, as time goes on, you know, I don't think it's ever gonna get to a point where I'll ever feel like the same person, but you can see how people have put their life back together and what that looks like. And that inspires me to move forward. Yeah, well, you are an inspiration and you're an inspiration to everyone here. And I think they're gonna really enjoy this um, talk today that we had and just kind of change our perspective a little bit and just how strong we really can be as human beings that we don't think that we can get through something and, and we can, and you're right, it's not the end of the world. And we reach out to each other, we need each other um, for support. And that's why we're here. We're here to help each other. We're here to love each other. And um, yeah, I think that's an important message in your story of incredible resilience. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Danielle. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. We will see you all next week.